0: Hi everyone, my name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi everyone, this is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. This is the third part of our Richard Ramirez True Crime Psychology series. It certainly is. What are we doing today, Kathy?
1: Well, the first couple episodes, we just do a really quick recap. So mm-hmm. the first episode, I talked a lot about his early development, childhood and environmental exposure experiences that may be coincided with some already um, genetic factors. So we talked about all the abuse that he endured, potential sexual abuse, um how he had multiple head injuries, epilepsy, and then that was all coupled with living in low SES, a lot of family stress. So we went through all of that on the first episode, which then led us to um, last week where we discussed more about his psychological profile and um, Mm -hmm. maybe where he falls on the psychopathy checklist. And all of that together sort of formed how that formed his... Character, his persona, and how that um, led up to what we're going to talk about today, which is his his kill. Yeah, um, where he had I think I think if I remember correctly, at the end of the episode two, we did talk about how he had um, started doing some more fairly innocuous things that were mm-hmm. um, criminogenic, and how he got a taste for that, and once he sort of did it once then it became insatiable pretty quickly. And so today we're going to, there will be some graphic content today, just as an FYI for people. I know a lot of people listen to us because that's their thing, but for some people who listen to us for other reasons, I just want to put that out there that we're going to get into the graphic nature of his kills. And what I was saying to Shannon before we started today was with someone like Ramirez, I think it's really interesting to talk about, not just for the gore factor, but because uh, one of the things that made him so complicated in in catching was how different he was between Mm -hmm. victims and depending on how the victim responded, what he would do. Right. So part of the reason
0: why we're going to go into detail not only because it's interesting to a lot of people and far from a lot of our realities, but because it was so unique. And it, yeah. It's important to establish that.
1: Absolutely. And there's there are heavy psychological elements in um, what he did. And I know there are with all serial killers, but when we get into, you know, just even the eye contact and what he would do if they didn't fight back versus if they did fight back, there was a lot of power and control and stuff in there that um, goes beyond, I think what we've seen with some other serial killers, at least who we've talked about on the show so far. Okay. So um, I want to start with a couple important facts, which we have um, two main detectives who worked on this case and they essentially gave up their entire lives uh, on this case. They sacrificed their lives to the point where their families moved out of their homes. They really had to protect their families because Ramirez knew who they were once everything started to come onto the news. They became celebrities by default. So the the two men are uh, Sergeant Frank Salerno, and he's very, very big in this field and a member of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department for 32 years And he was also the prime investigator in the Hillside Strangler serial murder case and led the investigator uh, and the lead investigator in the Night Stalker murder case. Um, My understanding of of Salerno is he was the one who actually, in the Hillside Strangler case, discovered that it was two people and not one. So he, he had a big, big part in that. So he already has this amazing reputation coming onto this case and then high profile cases very very high profile case i mean i can only imagine what his family went but both of these men with their families went through it's one thing to be in it and and be working on the case and your head's in it you know being your job a therapist (laughs) like you're in it and people around you're like how is this not killing you right um but if you are a family member who doesn't really have a choice or isn't part of this field, how taxing and how scary this probably was for them. Absolutely. And then Deputy uh, Gil Carrillo, who who was part of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department as well. So these two guys really hel- headlined um, the case, but there were many other people, I'm, I can't even go into the list, who uh, contributed to discovering that it was Richard who was doing all of this. Took okay. a lot of work. So... They sacrificed their lives. It really consumed them. It affected their families. Carrillo's wife moved the family out of the house due to the paranoia that Ramirez may actually strike their house out of spite. Yeah. So at this time now, um, Ramirez is starting to break into people's homes. And we knew that um, he was skilled in this because Miguel, his cousin, and his brother had taught him a lot of these tactics because of whether it was his brother's... um, exposure to gangs or Miguel's exposure to warfare and all of that he knew how to do this so what he started to do is he would start to pawn the items he stole from people's homes and people I think it was in the book I was reading they they tagged him as like the Santa Claus from hell right Uh like he would come in and murder and then take everything in the sack and leave and he would pawn to um to one fence so one guy was in charge of getting all of this stuff from ramirez and he would give him money for the item so the fence never asked questions nor cared about his identity Mm -hmm. but he he certainly knew he certainly knew that the less he knew the better and i think that would be the the case for um any fence but i think he he was starting to catch on that this might be the guy who's in the news. Right. right. So uh, much of Ramirez's items would stay in the fence's possession for a period of time because if you're going to do it smart, you are going to sell the stolen items very slowly in order to not get caught. You're not going to be like, wow, here's a sack from so-and-so's house. Let's put this out there, right? Here's
0: a whole bunch of silver. Here's a whole (laughs) bunch of silver. That I would never have normally.
1: Right. right, and and clearly stuff from people's homes, so right. here I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be this fence, maybe picking up and going, okay, I think I may know where these are coming from, but I have to hold on to them, right, because, like what,
0: uh, yeah, total catch-22, I mean,
1: you're getting into this business, you're sort of asking for it, but then you end yeah. up having Ramirez as one of your customers, like, yeah. not great, oh, no, so, yeah, um, So the fence began to figure out his identity, and he was afraid that the police would make him an accessory, clearly, right? So he was hoping he could get immunity if he turned himself in, but recognized that if he made the wrong judgment, and and Richard was not the night stalker, it could cause him his life. Yes. So I'm sitting there going, I I was thinking about this when I was reading it, going, what would I do? And I think (laughs) I would probably do the same thing, which was, I don't know if I'd want to take that chance.
0: No, I wouldn't want to take the chance. Yeah i would just uh, yeah i just wouldn't i wouldn't have that um i think i'm a risk averse enough Mm -hmm. to to just set aside that i mean i i don't know who the guy is or how the guy is and maybe you'll get into this but like depending on his socioeconomic level and how desperate he was for the cash or how much he was dependent on yeah impulse control all of that um personally i i'm I'm just risk averse enough to right. make that decision. I think this
1: is where it's it's healthy to be risk averse. Right. I believe, right? Sometimes not so much. Other times like this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, keep yes, your mouth please. shut. Yes. Yeah. Sus-
0: and I'm also very su- su- suspicious. I'm right. a sort of suspicious, kind of very cautious. I don't trust easily. Mm-hmm. So, like all of that would actually have worked to my favor. Right.
1: Like, what is this? <laughs> what? What? Yeah. Wh- yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So here's the thing and I don't know if this would be different now because I, I certainly know that with a lot of these prolific whether it's the people who are shooting up schools or movie theaters they're trying to they're trying to promote them less on TV so they don't I go out that, and do this yeah. for celebrity right mm-hmm. but back in this time the press also decided, um, to not release any items that had been stolen. Mm. So if the press had released the items that had been stolen, the fence could have been certain about his identity, mm-hmm. and that could have cracked this case much sooner. Yeah. And the surviving victims and witnesses also could have connected sooner um, and, and realized who Ramirez was. So that piece of evidence, all of the stuff that was stolen from the homes because they didn't release that, they probably could have saved about six months but they were tr- they were making a
0: they were making a call
1: right i guess about- or they just didn't assume that i don't know they don't really go into that but i think okay. it's a really interesting fact to think about mm-hmm. how those stolen items could have led people to connecting.
0: Because often I think when we're watching movies with this kind of plot line type of thing, I I believe that a lot of the audience is always thinking, um, oh no, keep the
1: information back so you can catch the killer. Like that's often the narrative. And it's probably what they thought. They didn't think that these victims who survived would go, wait a minute, that's Mm. the same, blah, blah, blah. And they also didn't know the fence. And they were trying to hold it
0: back so that... The Richard didn't know, you know, that yep, the killer sure. didn't know
1: that they had that evidence is usually a, a goal. That would I don't be know. my guess is that they were trying to, um, right. like, I mean, less we're is guessing, more. But yeah. But also they didn't know he had a fence. They didn't know that he was pawning this stuff out. Gotcha. So um, maybe they assumed that, but they didn't think that this guy was sitting back thinking, well, if I knew what it was, I would come forth. So yeah. Hindsight. twenty hindsight, twenty. <laughs> right. So, and I've said this before this has been one of the this was one of the most difficult cases to crack due to many factors. One was that Ramirez's urge to rape and kill was insatiable. He was constantly moving and he didn't fit one psychological profile and we started talking about that in episode 2 a little bit. We got into his profile. So I'm going to now talk about his crime tra- trajectory a little bit and leading to his capture. Um we don't get to the trial and 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 that until next week, but this is really uh, now a lot of his victims, and I want to just be respectful to the victims. Um, he had a, he had quite a few, so I'm going to go into detail about many, but there were others. Okay. Um, just so the audience can kind of follow how brutal and how different and how how quick he moved from one to the next. Okay. So he had multiple on on May 14th, 1985. Ramirez returns to Monterey Park in search of another random victim and enters the home of William Bill, one by Bill, Doy, and his disabled wife, Lillian. Doy was 66 and his wife 10 years his junior. Um, He surprised Doy in his bedroom. The Night Stalker automatically shot him in the face as Doy went for his own handgun. And even though he was already mortally wounded, Ramirez proceeded to beat William into unconsciousness before restraining Lillian with thumb cuffs and raping her. He was sticking to his usual pattern at this point as he ransacked the home for valuables, which I was just talking about. He did pretty much in every home. Bill Doy died of his injuries while in the hospital, but Lillian did live. Mm. She described Ramirez to the police as a tall Hispanic man dressed in all black with bad teeth he also left behind footprints from a pair of Avia sneakers in the flower beds, which the police photographed and cast. And during the trial, they actually have the um, the creator of these sneakers come to court and testify. Oh, wow. Because his sneakers end up being a really big part of the Because they're so capture. unique, I guess. Yeah, the I'm bottoms, assuming. I guess. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. The print they leave. The print. Sure. Uh-huh. So two weeks after this, on the night of May 29th, 1985, Ramirez uh, drives a stolen Mercedes-Benz to Monrovia, where he now attacks an 84-year-old woman by the name of Mabel Bell and her 81-year-old sister Florence Lang. So clearly, he did not discriminate—no age, no. race. Um, it was completely random. With, I would say, um, the only exception to that is it's—it was random. However, he did look for homes that were not well lit and he did go around and he would play with the locks and the easier it was to get in, but he had no problem breaking locks and picking locks either.
0: But that's typical of what I know of robbery pathology is that it's, they don't want to get caught. They're going to do what's easy. That's right. If people aren't home, I mean, he had a different agenda, but if you're just doing robbery, it's like people aren't home, easy to get into, that kind of thing. So since he had this agenda with hurting people as well. It's like a combo. Mm-hmm. Like if it's dark, it's not locked. Yep. That's going to help him be, well, not be detected. Right. And Which we, is interesting because of the disorganized profile. Well, that's there. what I was just about yeah. to say. Okay, go Yeah. Ahead. Like, no, I was just about to say
1: his disorganization <laughs> in some ways – Um, served him. And then in other ways, it doesn't really match up with some of the things that he did. But, and I imagine that was, you know, as we know
0: with mental illness on a day-to-day basis, you can have a different spectrum of uh, functioning. Right. Right. So,
1: right. And the way that he um, responds due to certain triggers, which we'll get into with these victims. So he ends up grabbing a hammer he finds in their kitchen. He bludgeons Mabel unconscious before shocking her with an electrical cord. I mean, the creativity of this guy is astounding. He, yeah. it, it was. It went beyond. I'm just going to ki- like Bundy was brutal. He was brutal. Mm-hmm. Dahmer was Dahmer. Um, he sedated them and then raped them and then killed them and then dismembered them. But Ramirez loved the torture. He was incredibly sadistic. He, that is what he thrived. Uh, that reminds
0: what, me of Kuklinski, actually. Yes, it's
1: the. I mean, a very different type of
0: person. But that they definitely have that in common. Loved where that. The creative part of
1: it was was part of the the high. Right. Yeah. So then he rapes Lang, Florence Lang, the 81 year old sister, mm-hmm. and used Mabel Bell's lipstick to draw a pentagram on her inner thigh, as well as on one of the wall of both bedrooms. So just to give a little bit of background, because I haven't talked about all of the, the victims, he didn't start with the pentagram that came later so that also threw off detectives because they're like okay now we have a satan worshiper is this guy like who is this guy yeah so the women weren't discovered for two days both were actually still alive but comatose i can't even imagine in their 80s alive comatose tortured the the amount of injuries was astounding bell was unable to recover from her injuries and she did die for the first time, the night stalker actually had left them more than a clue, and he had given the men um, hunting him a view into his psyche by announcing his dedication to Satan. So this is where, and like we've talked about the disorganization, he's now just like, "Well, fuck it, I'm going to add this too," and I'm going to, and, and so yeah. now he's going to start leaving a trail. Yeah. So this provided not only motivation for the terrible crimes, but also an explanation for his uh, brazeness and recklessness at a crime scene as well. So they're like, this is a guy who now um, has zero moral compass Mm -hmm. and it's even perpetuated by his commitment to Satan. I imagine they
0: didn't connect, like you said, they didn't connect the murders yet when they were. When they were happening because of the different, like you said, the different criminal makeup, whatever. Yeah, his, and then yeah. he
1: drove all over the place. Right, it wasn't right, even right. with, I mean, one day he's in Monterey right. Park, then like Glendale, then uh, Monrovia, he was, uh, San Francisco. He was everywhere. Uh, San Francisco was later, but you know what I mean? Like I he, he didn't, he just got, like, he would steal a car and he'd go to a random space, right. spot. Gotcha. So the next day... Ramirez was back out in the stolen Mercedes. I mean, I mean, my God! After he's had this whole night of this, yes. he's back out in the stolen Mercedes, looking to kill again. You'd think he'd be exhausted, but he's just not. He's manic, yeah. and he's using cocaine, sure. and he's so he silently cruises. He silently cruises up to a home in Burbank. Now he's in Burbank. Oh, okay. okay. And if you don't, those of you listening, if you don't know the Los Angeles area, it's ninety miles wide. It mm-hmm. is not a small city. No. So he is going, and it's a big circle. He is literally going from one random part of the city to something that could take him over an hour to get somewhere else, even in the middle of the night.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So now he's back in Burbank, cutting the engine and the lights uh, as he approaches. So he's just like, he's just flying through lights. He gains entrance to the locked mm-hmm. house by reaching, um, reaching up through the dog door and letting himself in. So, so sorry, I read that wrong. This was a note I had to myself. I read that wrong. Cutting the engine and the lights, meaning he cut off the electricity and the lights, everything in his car when he pulled mm. up. So he was silent. So he, okay. yeah, he pulls up and he, he turns the life, lights off his car. He just kind of rolls up. Okay. Mm. So he, he gains entrance. He slips his hand up through the doggy door, lets himself in. Mm. Ruth Wilson awoke to a flashlight beam, blinding her in the face He grabs, she's 41 years old, he grabs her and leads her to the room of her 12-year-old son. So clearly, um, he's just loving this torture. At gunpoint, he bound them with handcuffs and ransacked the house. Mm -hmm. He then begins to sodomize her repeatedly, ordering her to not look at him and telling her at one point um, he would cut her eyes out if she did. And we've talked about his obsession with... Um, not looking at people in the eyes. And when they've looked at him in the eyes, he's actually cut them out mm-hmm. after he, he mur- murders them. Um, so then he f- fled the scene after retrieving, retrieving the child from the closet mm-hmm. and binding the two together again with the handcuffs. Yeah. So um, a 12-year-old boy, yeah. right? Thrown yep. in the closet, realizes his mother's being sodomized, pulls the kid out, binds them together. I don't even know how you can even recover from something like that i don't know either that's brutal so now we're looking at june so this was all in may okay june 27th 1985 the body of a 27 year old teacher is found in arcadia again okay arcadia she'd been sodomized before having her throat slit on the night of july 2nd 1985 ramirez returns to arcadia in a stolen toyota randomly selecting the house of a 75 year old uh, mary louise cannon so we're looking at just a few days there. Okay. Yeah. He's accelerating. He's accelerating. He bludgeons her into unconsciousness with a lamp before repeatedly stabbing her with a butcher knife he picked up in her kitchen. And she was clearly found dead at the crime scene. Okay. So some nights he comes in um, and he's just ready to go. And other times he really enjoys like the slow process and the torture and all of that. Right. Um, my understanding is the more they, if if they were to fight back, he would kill them. So if they were more, I remember you saying that that if if they
0: resisted, he would kill quicker. Mm-hmm. And if they had some hope that they could get out of it, is what I'm imagining from a victim's perspective that they were hoping that it was just a robbery or hoping that it was just this or X Y Z. Um, then he would rape them then he would prolong, prolong
1: yeah the torture the torture mm-hmm. and then with the men he would kill them right away they were just in his way right, right right right. so just a couple days after this so we're looking i just want to count here between june 27th he kills um he kills someone that the teacher okay and then july 2nd he kill he uh sodomizes, bludgeons, her into unconsciousness, a a woman and and her son. And then three days after that, he breaks into another home in Sierra Madre and bludgeons a 16-year-old girl, Whitney Bennett, with a tire iron as she slept in her bedroom. After searching um, for a knife in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. he attempts to strangle the girl with a telephone cord. He starts to see sparks emanate from the cord. That's how tight... Oh. And so the victim begins to breathe. He fled the house, believing that Jesus Christ had intervened and saved her. Oh, okay. She survives the savage beating, which requires 478 stitches, nearly four feet of sutures to close, uh, to close the lacerations to her scalp. I remember looking up this case after I read about it and how she had woken up the next morning. I think her parents were still in the house. Oh, wow. So I don't know how he was able to do this so quietly. But she remembers, like, just crawling out of her bedroom, having no idea. Like, looked in the mirror, had no idea what happened. Just how terrifying. Sixteen years old.
0: Amazing. Oh,
1: yeah. What a survivor. Yeah. So after this, so this is now July fifth. Did I say two days after this, Mm -hmm. he goes back to Monterey Park to burglarize the home of a sixty-one-year-old Joyce Lucille Nelson. He's surprised because she's sleeping on the couch. She may have startled him a little bit because he wasn't expecting her to be there. Uh So he then beats her unconscious stomps on her to death, leaving a shoe print from Zavia's sneaker, literally imprinted on her face. Okay. That was the level of intensity, which I would imagine meant it went into the muscle. It went into, if it's going to leave that kind of print, it's not just skin. If it's going to last. No, right. Um, Ramirez, isn't done for the night, though. This is, he's, he's still going. He cruises around a few neighborhoods nearby, doubling back to Monterey Park. This time he chose the home of a 63-year-old Sophie Dickman. At gunpoint, he handcuffs Dickman and attempted to rape her, but he quickly grows frustrated. So he steals all of her jewelry, making her swear to Satan that she'd give him everything of value before leaving. That's it. I mean, she probably had it the easiest and that was still incredibly terrifying. Absolutely. He's July just, He's just all over the place. He's all over the place. July twentieth, we're still in the same month. He purchases a machete with cash before driving to a stolen Toyota. Mm-hmm. Driving a stolen Toyota out to Glendale. So Glendale and Burbank are close. He's back out in that area. He randomly chooses the home of Maxon and Leela Needing, I believe it's pronounced. Okay. Another elderly couple. With bloodthirsty cry, he bursts into the sleeping couple's bedroom, hacks at them um, with his, the, the author said, with his deadly new toy. Mm. Unsatisfied with how long it was taking, Ramirez then shot both of them in the head with his twenty-two caliber handgun before mutilating their bodies with the machete. So mm. it's just, to me, incredibly, it's whatever mood he's in. There's no rhyme or reason. This time he comes and he just shoots them both and then dismembers them versus torturing them and then killing them. So there's no, it's incredibly disorganized.
0: Yeah. The weapons. I mean, we see this in a lots of different kinds of criminals, right? The weapon the, in this particular case, it's the weapons and the mode of killing. I mean, he obviously has his preferences. There's a couple of themes obviously that right. are going on, but you know, location, age, I mean, there's obviously decision-making around gender mm-hmm. and accessible weapons that he has, but he'll kill with his bare hands. Mm-hmm. It That's not the signature. No. The signature is the torture, mm-hmm. and then I guess later the devil signs. Mm-hmm. But other than that, what other signatures are we seeing? Well, the area. It's Los Angeles area. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh,
1: the, uh, he de- did like to um, cuff them. Find them. Okay. Um, and then there was the, uh, he liked to engage with the women in some sort of like, uh, like a drama. Yeah. Okay. There was this feel like you're going to listen to me. You're going to shut the fuck up. Don't look at me. He did that with several, like there was this, he, this dialogue, the domination, dialogue. the domination dialogue. Okay. Yeah. Um, So after this, he now fences the stolen items he'd taken from the needlings and then drives to Sun Valley, which is along the five. At 4 a.m., he breaks into another home of the Kovanath family. I think I'm saying that right. He shoots uh, Chanarong, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this person right, in the head with a 25 caliber handgun while he slept, instantly killing him. Mm -hmm. He then repeatedly rapes the wife Somkid beating and sodomizing her while she begs for mercy. So again, like what we were just saying, he loved this domination mm-hmm. to the point that it it like when we were talking about in the last episode, the sexual sadism, he loved to humiliate, he loved to have them at their mercy. Yeah. He then restrains the couple's terrified eight-year-old son before dragging SomKid around the house looking for valuable items to steal. He demands that she swears to Satan that she's not hiding any money from him. He then rapes the eight-year-old boy and leaves. So this is the first time now we're experiencing him rape a child. Mm -hmm. He then leaves shoe prints behind from his sneakers, making detectives wonder if he was baiting them. Mm -hmm. And then um, he gives a... Somkid then gives a detailed... Because she survives. Gives a detailed description of her attacker to the police. They release this information to the press who then quickly dubbed him the Night Stalker. So now they're starting to realize it is this one person. Okay, yeah. yeah. By now,
0: and I imagine what, one of the things that didn't serve him, which is his mental illness in getting away with this, is that he had no ability to pause. Nope. He was on a rampage. Yeah. And so I imagine that's one of the reasons why they could put it together. Is yeah, the mental, was, and, and the drugs. And the drugs. Yeah. It, I just imagine that... I'm not a police officer, obviously, but I imagine that's one of the things that helped them put it together because it was all so close together and in in L.A., and then you start to see a pattern like super fast happening. But if he, it was every two years or every right. four years or what have you, he would have been one of these people that we've talked about that's prolific over a long period of time. Right. So his mental illness served the public in a way. Right of, of being able to catch him quicker. I don't mean any of his actions served us in any way, Right. but that particular, yeah, it's interesting
1: because they say here, they think that he's baiting them. I don't think it was that at all. I I think he was just incredibly impulsive and insatiable. Yeah. And not thinking he, I don't think he he was was out of his
0: mind doing anything necessarily on purpose except for the things he did in the moment.
1: Yep. Yeah. Um, I just want to, before we break, I just want to go back to something really quickly where it talks about, um, that, that thought that he has, the delusional thought that Jesus Christ was involved. Yes. Um, so I think that sometimes it gets confusing, you know, people could look at that and go, how is he not found insane? Because he's having, he's clearly not in the right mind. Right. So I just want to, I want to clarify that there's a difference between, a mentally disordered offender and someone who is found uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. The window for insanity is much smaller. You can have a mental disorder or a mental illness that contributes to the crime, but it still doesn't um, qualify necessarily as insanity. So if he was insane, they would have had to prove that this entire uh, just what do we want to call this that he went on spree, spree killing spree that that entire time uh, he did not understand that what he was doing was wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, if he, if he did know what he was doing, that it wasn't causing the type of harm. Uh, Cause I would, he's in California, which is state of California. Um, we use the Minotan. We can actually send listeners back to myths about serial killer episode where we, I think, is that the episode where we talk about insanity? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. So if you want to know more about that, because I think, People listening to this go, "How was he not found insane? Because he wasn't. He was certainly mentally disordered, but he was not insane." Well, the
0: court's definition of it and like our colloquial, right, culture's yeah. definition is very different.
1: Insanity is a legal term. It's not. I think that's what confuses people. It's right. not a. It's not a um, mental health term. Right. It's a. It's a legal term. So I think this is a good place to take a break.
0: Okay, we're yeah. gonna take a break and be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show everyone this is terror talk we're back from the break this is our third part of our four-part series on richard ramirez and i believe we're going into the investigation and capture now
1: yes so we're going to start moving into some of the evidence that leads to capturing him great so the team starts to agree that this guy has to be an ex-con he's done hard times somewhere he's probably been in the service however none of these were true but it did really represent Miguel, his cousin, ah. which is everything he, he learned was, emulating. was from Miguel, sure. right? So it represents um, his cousin, who was a major influence on him. So the investigation initially concentrated in the direction of a recently released veteran convict. Which is not him at all.
0: That's really interesting. He doesn't even have his own criminal profile.
1: Isn't that crazy? He like, borrows he, he everything. He borrows from whether it's his brother or his cousin, probably why it was so hard for Well, metaphorically,
0: to find. he steals.
1: He steals. <laughs> yeah. So Salerno ends up calling the behavioral science unit of the FBI to, to join the stalker task force. Mm-hmm. So they're, these people are the most informed law enforcement people in the world on the subject of serial killers okay. and had beginning in 1978 done extensive interviews with 51 incarcerated serial murderers so they were like these are the people we need to find this guy mm-hmm. so agent bill hagmeyer and a program coordinator by the name of terry green were leads on this and arrive uh, with two other crime analysts they start to view the shoe prints from ramirez's infamous Avia shoes. And the crime scene and autopsy photos from the body of Mabel Bell, who had, been, uh, who had the carved pentagram on her thigh. Mm-hmm. And then um, this is where this is around the time Ramirez begins leaving pentagrams on the wall or on his victims uh, as the murder sprees continue. So the agents look at all of the crime reports and Hagmeier said, Look, fellas, I don't want to mislead you, but all we have is based on what we've been told by killers. What you've described to us is unique. We'll still do a profile, but what you've got here is a first. Oh wow. So they were like crap. Shit. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So That would be my reaction
0: anyway, like after all
1: the work. (laughs) What a bummer. this was a really difficult moment for Carrillo and Salerno because they banked on the FBI being able to find something that they had missed. Right. And the truth is, is Carrillo and Salerno were actually really that thorough and that amazing that they hadn't missed anything. It was just such a mess. And it was so unpredictable that even the FBI were like, we've never seen anything like this before. Okay. Just pretty big. Yeah. Um, so let's see. There's a prime witness in this case. And I actually watched a, a, a YouTube interview with him. His name is James Romero. And he's a pretty key witness. And he ended up having to testify, which is really scary because he was 13 years old at the time, living in Mission Viejo. And Romero encountered Ramirez on a summer night in 1985, mm. which is when he was in the midst of his killing spree. So Romero was up late. You have to think it's the 80s, it's summertime, he's up late, he's 13 years old, he's hanging out in his garage after a family road trip when he hears footsteps up on the gravel. Now, everyone already knows that the Night Stalker is somewhere. So, sorry, just hit that, talking with my hands. <laughs> Romero sits there and, he, and he, he hears this guy walking up towards the garage. So he bolts in the house and wakes up his parents to call 911. But then he runs back outside and sees the car and the part of the license plate. So this is what led police to finding Ramirez's car. And then the teen confirms, yes, that's the car that I saw. They lift a fingerprint from the car which quickly leads to his capture. And we're going to get into the capture in a moment, but I just, I think this is so incredible that after all of this, they bring in FBI, they bring in profilers, they bring in all this stuff. A 13-year-old kid cracked this case. Mm-hmm. And then more, um, I think, importantly, is to recognize that then a lot of, of, of pressure was put on this boy having to testify in court, which I think would be incredibly terrifying.
0: Yeah, that starts a whole new story, and I... And that kid has quite a story, I'm sure. He
1: does. And um, I watched his... He's now, I guess, what would this be, in his 40s, 50s or something now? Mm-hmm. Um, and he was saying how um, clearly there's a part of him that wished... you know He's glad he did what he did, but there's a part of him that wished he never he had never to be a part there. of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. Um, so you can find videos on him, and it, it's really interesting to hear what he has to say about it. Right. So um, 30 years later during this video that I was watching, Romero states that he can still remember the number on the plates and express how, uh, being partially responsible for the capture has really left, uh, has really affected him mentally. Absolutely. And he did state that he received threats over the phone to not serve as a witness, but he testified it testified anyway. So he was getting threats from people going, if you testify, we're going to hurt you.
0: I'm thinking about his family because the family would have made those just, I mean, I don't know who he was living with, but. Or followers. They they would have made that decision together because of his age. Sure. About testifying and all of that. And his parents or
1: whoever his caregivers are
0: could have said, no, you're, you're not going to do that.
1: Right, But didn't. They didn't. Yeah. And then um, the people calling in were, I would imagine, followers of Ramirez, Satan mm-hmm. worshipers, people who were like, we're behind this guy. Yeah. Um, So on the morning of August 30th, 1985, Ramirez steps on the Greyhound bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother, Robert. He knows nothing about being linked to the night stalker crimes at this point. He's just doing his thing, but the cops are already starting uh, to alert people in um, Arizona and keeping eyes on vehicles and descriptions of Ramirez. So his visit there actually ends up being incredibly short-lived because Robert's wife didn't like him, did not let him visit after accusations of Richard coming on to her, which we know are probably true. Probably, yeah. So he then goes, all right, well, I'm not going to be able to stay with you guys. I'm going to jump on a bus and go back to L.A., which is what he did. So he arrives at the bus depot. And there are 15 secret Service men stationed in and around the terminal waiting for Ramirez because they assume he's traveling a lot. He's been traveling a lot. Um, They're instructed to be looking for Ramirez and suspect that he would be traveling, which he was. They were right about that. Mm -hmm. But he seamlessly moves through the terminal without being recognized. But he did notice a lot of plainclothes police officers. But he does not yet know that his face is on the cover of every L.A. newspaper and the minds of many citizens at this point. Okay. So he's gone to Arizona. He's come back. And by the time he comes back, L.A. is saturated in news about him, including his face. Because now they know who it is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He steps outside of the station. Um, he goes over and, and buys himself or cops himself a nickel of pot and heads towards Mike's Liquor Store on uh, Southtown Avenue. He buys himself some coffee. He's waiting for his change. He notices a few elderly Mexican women in the back of the store pointing at him and looking at him with fear, obvious fear, on their faces. So he heard one of them say, El Matador, which translates to the killer. His eyes drop down to the news rack, and this is when he sees his face everywhere. Uh oh. <laughs> so he stops and he's now oriented to what is actually going on. Everything hits, hits him at once. Yeah. Um he grabs a Spanish version of the paper, La Opinión, opinion, opinion mm-hmm. and he hurries from the store. And a few feet from the store, the owner calls the police and within moments, every single cruiser and helicopter dispatch in East LA is searching for him. He reads the article in the paper and, and this tells him how he was identified in the sheriff's block press conference from the night before. So he now has all of this information as to how he was found. Hmm. This next part, I remember reading this and going, I understand why people think he's evil because he is superhuman. The way that he and, and if you go back to the first episode, remember how I would talk about her, how I talked about when his dad was abusing, he would leave the house. He would run and he'd get to that cemetery or the graveyard so fast. He was incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. This now serves him. He ducks into a yard and he jumps a six foot fence. I'd already be tired after that. <laughs> right. This is just the beginning, right? So he starts to head toward the Santa Ana freeway. <laughs> he leaves his black knapsack in the yard of a house, um, that's like abutted the highway. It's close to the highway. He hops another fence, runs down closer to the highway. He's completely exhausted, but he darts across the highway, nearly getting hit by a car. Mm. On the east side of the freeway, he runs up a hill, hops another fence, catches a bus, pays his fare, and sits down. Everyone on the bus is like, oh my God, that's the night stalker. Oh, wow wow so he's sitting on the bus and everyone's going oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god he's sitting there in his head going okay i clearly i need a car like i everyone knows who i am gotta go go." yeah yeah so he gets off the bus and he spots a woman by herself sitting in a running car and attempts to run toward the car so in spanish she's yelling at her and stating he needs this car because his mother had died she denies and tells uh she denies, mm-hmm. and, he t- and he told her he had a gun and tried forcing her out of the car. If you don't get out of this car, I'm going to kill you. Right. The woman begins to scream, which causes attention from Carmelo Robles and Arthur Bene- Benavides, mm-hmm. who run from this bakery and barbershop. So now he's cre- causing all of this scene. Arthur immediately recognizes him, and a third man by the name of Frank Moreno is sitting um, exiting the building... With the alley that Richard had ducked into, so mm. he things are now everything's starting to close in. Mm-hmm. So Richard goes, "Nah, I don't think so." He jumps another six foot fence, acro- crosses a woman's yard. The chase continues through various yards. He's just hopping fences and running and running. It's like you wonder where he gets this resilience from. Yeah, part of it's adrenaline, I understand. Maybe part of it's cocaine. I don't know, but he is. But he had just scored some pot, so I don't know how energized. I, I imagine he could adrenaline. Be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He then steals another vehicle from a 28-year-old woman by the name of Angela. He punches her in the stomach, steals her keys, and at this point, he draws the attention of everyone on the block. I'm trying to picture this scene and how chaotic this is. Everyone is screaming, El Matador, El Matador. They're all, you know, here's the killer. Angela's husband runs out from the house with a bar in his hand, noticing that Richard is still trying to start the car. So he strikes Richard in the back of the head. Richard doesn't say a word but gets out of the car and starts running again. Okay. (laughs) Jesus. This is like out of a horror film when you hit Michael Myers and nothing happens and you're like, oh man, he would totally be dead by now. (laughs) But no. 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 He gets out of the car. He turns around. He sticks his tongue out like a serpent and starts hissing because he's now psychotic as all hell. Yeah. Manuel and another neighbor begin chasing him. He takes one swing and misses him. And then swings again, knocking Richard on the top of his head into the ground. And when Richard gets arrested, if there, there's a lot of footage on him having a huge bandage on his head. Oh. He's sitting there bleeding without any idea about what was going on. LAPD and LASD are on the way. So you have the police department, the sheriff's department on the way. Deputy Ramirez gets out of the car after hearing, it's him, it's him. We caught him. The deputy realizes it's the night stalker. LAPD officers... Um, Two of them, Dave Strangin and John Vidal, are next to arrive. Walk up to him and say, "Are you Richard Ramirez?" Strangin asks. "Yes, it's me, man," he said. That's it. So, essentially, this guy—you have all of LAPD, you have all the Sheriff's Department, you have the FBI—and he was caught by civilians, Mm -hmm. a 13-year-old boy and citizens.
0: And so there, that's when the press really actually helped the situation because right. nobody would have, if they had kept his picture back or
1: any of that, right. it wouldn't have happened. So, and he's brutally <laughs> beaten with a head injury by these three guys. So the arrest actually saved his life. They would have beaten him to death. Yeah. So Frank Salerno stated, this is the most complicated case I've worked. Carrillo cried during his interview, stating that he was relieved knowing that people were safe and his family could come home his capture sent a feeling of calm or stillness that often happens after a natural disaster. And so it was really interesting because this is how much trauma this one individual had created over the entire city of Los Angeles. And once he was brought into the station, he was incredibly anxious to confess and he stated, I want the electric chair. They should have shot me in the street. Yeah. So he knew this was it. And we'll get into his arrest and the beginning of his trial in the final episode. But his capture was pretty remarkable because in the past, it's been a lot of law enforcement. FBI. This was all citizens, civilians.
0: It was unique in so many ways, right, from start to finish, from Mm -hmm. his own pathology to the way he was captured. Yeah, I'm struck. What year are we talking about when he was captured? 85. 85. Yeah, because I'm just struck by the the L.A. riots were until 92, Mm -hmm. and so this is 85, and because my first thought was how there was this rash in the early 90s but obviously it started in the 80s of citizen beatings yeah you know citizen captures
1: well and it's almost like Mm -hmm. the amount of people everyone was indirectly affected by him Mm -hmm. because everyone was living in terror Mm -hmm. so you get these three guys who have an opportunity to put that all back on him they were like i i'll kill him Everyone was so done being terrified, which is,
0: I mean, I really, I, you know, you have mixed emotions about citizens taking these things into their own hands, but I absolutely understand what it was like to live in LA at that time. And I also understand the, it just needed, they just needed, it needed to be done. And if they had the opportunity to, uh, I mean, I'm glad they didn't kill him in that moment because that would have changed their lives. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how their lives were changed uh, from this incident.
1: Because they were like, now you're on my street. Right. Now you're in my town. Right. Yeah. Like, And I'm sure that lots and lots of people
0: at that time were like, oh, yeah, if I ever saw him, I would X, Y, Z. But these uh, three people actually exercised that.
1: Yeah, the arrest saved his life. They got there in time before. Yeah, they
0: would have killed him. Yeah. And then, you know, and like I said, in hindsight, I'm glad they didn't because of how how it would have changed their reality. Yeah, drastically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then also there were Mm -hmm. a lot of people who going into the trial were trying to say it was more than one person. I mean, it solidified with him going to court that he did what he did.
0: Right. Okay, we're going to take a little break and come back with some reflections on this episode and let you know what's in store for the fourth and final episode. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone, we're back. So that's the bulk of episode three. I am definitely struck by the violence. I mean, you can't really listen to all of that Mm-mm. without. I mean, there's a part of me that can compartmentalize it and set it aside, and and not and try not to get too wrapped up in the visuals because I'm a pretty imaginative person. So when you were describing the the different rapes and murders and you know, some people he killed, some people he raped, some people he just beat up or maimed. It's sort of all over the place with, mm-hmm. you know, disorganized pathology. But
1: Every- then
0: also, it, it also struck me, I'll just say this real quick, that the capture, and I realize this is in hindsight, and I realize this is somebody writing about it, so they're making it more concise than it probably was, but it's like, it, it seems... And maybe this is true of lots of cases, but it's like so much more simple than all of the murders, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. just seemed kind of like, I guess that's been true of a lot of the cases we've looked at where they just fuck up.
1: Yeah. They can't help themselves, especially when the insatiability kicks in. Right. But it, looking back on his entire life, so much violence mm-hmm. from day one. Yeah, I mean, he just
0: doesn't know what it's like. He never knew what it was like to be a person in the world without being violated or violating Mm -hmm. from his childhood to his imagination to what he actually executed himself.
1: Just imagining what it would be like to be in his head every day.
0: Yeah, I don't... That is not a place I would want to be. That sounds Mm -hmm. like a very harsh, violent predatory, black and white, um, chaotic headspace. Mm-hmm.
1: So what's going to come up for us
0: in episode four?
1: We're going to get into, um, what happens after his arrest and, uh, his attorneys, there's some a lot of drama around how he got his attorneys and decided on counsel, um, and then get into the hearing. Okay. And also, just we'll talk a little bit about his followers. Okay. And what his life was like in prison and leading up to his, uh, his, it, them finding him guilty basically, because they did. Right. His
0: sentence. Right. And he's deceased, right? So he died in prison. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. We will wrap it up next week. This has been really interesting. Yeah. Are you, you finding? Are you? I know that you talked a lot along the way about how difficult it was to research him because of, I imagine, because of this content we went through today.
1: He was the hardest out of the three. I mean, Dahmer was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Bundy was probably the easiest because I think I already knew a lot about Bundy. You were familiar, so there was like a desensitized. Yeah, and Bundy, Bundy's like a playboy. Bundy, I don't want to, I want, I don't want to minimize, but. And you and I have talked about this before. Bundy's actually really boring compared yeah. to a lot of these guys. I mm-hmm. think Bundy was a good one to do because I know a lot of people know of him, and and there was a lot going on in the media around him at that time. And I was very familiar with right his kills, but he's to me the most boring of all. Of out, them. out of all of them, so far, <laughs> very very predictable, very just whatever. I don't know, not
0: particularly unique. No. I guess. I guess the unique part and the part that people glom on to is the, um, the charisma.
1: Yeah, I think I think if he would have looked different or had a different yeah. race or ethnicity, he wouldn't be as notorious or. And maybe because
0: there was this crescendo i mean i know we're getting to bundy now but <laughs> there was this crescendo at the end where he just hacked up a sorority house yeah. and it was i mean which really... ramirez
1: was doing this every night right like <laughs> uh, i it,
0: it, like bundy in our in our society of of story making and how we look at stories is sort of like the act one act two act three structure the three-act structure he really plays into that because there was a crescendo and then capture yeah. and then the, the drama of the courtroom. And he was such a spectacle. So I can, I can understand why we're a little bit fascinated. Cause you look at, you look at any of the, you know, top 10 serial killers, that kind of shit on the internet. Mm-hmm. And Bundy is number one on most of them, which he's is in the so, top five and he's boring to us, he, but <laughs> he
1: really is. And yeah. he, and like, Psychologically. I, I found Kuklinski. Yeah. Way more fascinating. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, he's, he's to me, one of the most fascinating we've done on the show yet. Agreed. Because one, he's, he, a lot of people don't know about him. I certainly didn't know as much about him until you did, uh, that, um, series. He's fascinating. Yeah. And I, and again, I mean, I think I even mentioned
0: when we did that series, like I could do an, an additional series on him. Like there's, yeah. there's a, so much we didn't go into. Um, but yeah. I agree. But that's the prolificness, right? That's that sort of decades. We we
1: value people who are attractive. We value white men. We value socioeconomic status. Bundy was privileged in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not talking about his trauma and what he endured as a child and all that. That's separate from just being a white, hetero, cisgender male, especially at that time Mm -hmm. with his charm and with his looks. Like they said, you know, we denied that he was the killer for so long simply because of what he looked like. It was
0: timing, too, the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, I think he made a name for himself in that way, too, just timing. So, yeah, Ramirez presents very, very, very differently. Ramirez presents like an animal. Ramirez, I believe, presents more like what society... Understands or sees a serial killer. Like the more as. primal. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think they, that in general, a lot of people who are not knowledgeable about these things, which I realize a lot of people are knowledgeable about the, these days, but he definitely represents something that's easy to hate, easy to vilify, easy to beat up on the street as mm-hmm. represented um, that shadowy side that we all want to deny that we're capable of mm-hmm. that that kind of um visceral impulsive primal response to our childhood yes uh but there he is yeah I mean that uh, he's the personification of he's that.
1: pretty terrifying.
0: Absolutely. So we will um, please come back and listen to our shrink chat show on Friday. It's a little bit of lighter, gentler (laughs) behind the scenes type of show. Uh, But for those of you who are only interested in the main show, please come back next Wednesday and hear our fourth part of this four part series. And we thank you so much for listening. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon.
1: And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.